0: You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Today we, we're starting a new series. I want to read our passage for today. Kind of a five-week series just to kind of finish off the summer and uh, reflect our hearts on, on what God calls us to as his people, in particular as his church. And um, I want to read our passage, and then I'll introduce this series. Uh, we're going to go to John chapter 13, uh, a brief passage here in verse 31 to 35. Let's go to God's Word. And this is the, the evening before Jesus' crucifixion, to give you a brief context here. When he had gone out, Jesus said, "'Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify Himself, him in himself and glorify him at once.'" Let me put this passage in context uh, for us this morning. Jesus has a special evening prepared for his disciples. It's the night before his crucifixion, and a meal is prepared during the Passover feast, and he will speak to them, and he'll share with them kind of his parting words. I mean, these are his dying words. What do you say to your closest friends in the last opportunity that you have to speak with them before you die? I imagine it would be very thoughtful, very intentional. I imagine it would be the very thing that you would want to tell them that they will remember forever because this is your last chance to speak to them directly before you die. In fact, these are going to be the people that will take the teachings of Jesus to the world. In part, in, in, in a way, you and I know of the teachings of Christ because they were faithful to their, to their call to take the gospel, to take Jesus' words, and to spread it wherever they went. And so this last moment is really important. This last conversation is really important for Jesus and his friends. What do you say on the night, on that night? You say the most important thing. So, as Jesus prepares his final words, he invites his disciples to lean in, to listen closely, and then he says to them, Remember this, if you remember anything at all, remember this. Here is what I want you to do I want you to love one another just as I had loved you. He doesn't say, Be true to yourself, follow your heart, and do what ultimately feels right. But you know what, if, if he did say that, I bet that you and I would read that and not think anything strange about it. We would almost see, think that it was fitting, a fitting closing remark. Follow your heart. Do what is right. Be true to yourself. Never let anyone tell you who to be or what to do. It would seem fitting for kind of our ears in 21st century America right now. Because almost everything in our world is telling us and encouraging us to improve ourselves, to better ourselves, to follow our desires, and to do what ultimately makes us most comfortable. But in Jesus's dying last words, this is how he wants us to live as his disciples. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. I want to give you a pop quiz, and you don't have to answer this out loud. But just think to yourself how you might answer this question, these questions. Today, compared to a year ago, does our culture seem to be more fractured and divided or more whole and put together? Well, that was an easy one. Let me, let, me, let me go to another one. How much time do you spend in your day thinking about your own personal comfort and safety compared to the comfort and safety of those around you? Over the course of the past year, do you fear, feel more isolated from meaningful relationships or more connected in meaningful relationships? When you think of your work or career path, what percentage of your motivation in your work has to do with you bettering your own life and status, and what percentage of your motivation for that particular work has to do with improving the welfare of others? You see, it's no surprise that a society that is hyper individualistic and hyper that values hyper-independence and hyper-entitlement will experience deeper isolation, deeper fracture, and deeper longing for relief. And the only way to do that, the only way to get that, that that hope for deeper connection with others deeper meaning in our relationships, deeper wholeness in our life is to take Jesus' words to heart and to not be people that are fractured from one another, not to be people that are isolated from one another, but people that press into deeper, loving, sacrificial relationships with each other. We need to be people that, that steer our lives towards community and commitment towards one another. Not just community in the sense of being with other people, but steering towards a a meaningful kind of community where we are loving one another, pouring our lives into one another, committed to one another, and not just individual people on self-improvement projects. What our world needs is not people more concerned with their own well-being but the world needs followers of Jesus who look beyond their own needs and love one another as Christ has loved us. Imagine a world like that. Imagine a church like that. Imagine a, a home or a family or a workplace like that that would take these words of Christ and obey these words. Loving one another as Christ has loved us. There are over a hundred commands in the New Testament that have to do directly with the things that we should do as followers of Jesus. Over 100 commands in the New Testament given specifically to the church, followers of Jesus, for how we should treat one another. Of course, the church ought to be concerned with how we treat people uh, in our communities and in our workplaces and in the world, those who are maybe not a part of our church or don't know Jesus. There's great concern we should have with being people on mission and proclaiming the gospel but this morning, I, I want to start this five-week series to explore some of the, the one another commands in Scripture, the, the commands given specifically to followers of Jesus, because there are hundred over a hundred of these commands that, that are given just to people who follow Jesus, how we are to treat one another, how we are to live with one another. And of those 100 commands, four of those commands have to do with kissing. And we're not going to cover that aspect in this series, unfortunately. But here we're going to cover some of the more common ones. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Confess your sins to one another. Do not fail to meet with one another. Our passage today becomes the bedrock for all the other one another's, that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. We want to understand what it means that Jesus is calling us into being a people that love one another as Christ has loved us. So this passage, we're going to see the example of love, the encounter with love, and the exhortation to love. So we have that, the example, the encounter, and the exhortation. First, let's look at this example of love given to us. How? are we to love? What example has been given to us? The word and concept of love has been taken, it has been taken and has been distorted over generations and has become into a form and shape in our culture that is almost unrecognizable and hard to define. If I were to ask you what is love, I might get a different definition for every single person in this room. The true definition of love has been so distorted. Um, It's lost all substance the way that it's used today. For instance, I saw a sign uh, just a couple weeks ago as I was entering into a building that said, love who you want, when you want, and however you want. And I can think of like immediately like 10 reasons why that's a really bad idea. <laughs> however I want, whenever I want, whoever I want. Do we even know what love is? Our cultures become so self-obsessed, so self-absorbed. It's even turned an extremely relational idea and concept like love, which is so connected, so relational, so intimate, so vulnerable, and it's taken something that means something so connected with others, and it's detached it to be something so personal and individual, to a point of saying, love is whatever you make it to be. I'm reminded of Inigo Montoya, right, in The Princess Bride, when he says to Vizzini, you keep saying that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Have we, has, has love become that word for us? Do we even know what it means anymore? So there's a pattern of love in the world um, that's incredibly selfish. It's ultimately motivated to affirm our glory, our ideas, our comfort, our safety, but there's a pattern of love that God gives us. There's a pattern of love that Jesus shows us that isn't self-obsessed, that's sacrificial. It's motivated to serve, to give, to lay down one's life. In fact, it's not true love unless it truly follows the pattern of love which Jesus lays out. So what is this pattern? What is this pattern or example of love? Look again at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So Jesus doesn't leave it up to us or his followers to define what love is. He clarifies love. He defines love. He shows and demonstrates love. Just as I have loved you. He's referring to something in the immediate context here that we didn't read. On this night that that Jesus is spending his last meal with his friends, he prepares the meal. He sits down and everyone is seated at the table to enjoy this meal. And Jesus gets up from the meal. He takes off his outer garment and he wraps a towel around his waist. And he pours water in a basin and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. This is an act uh, so humiliating that even some of his disciples rebuke him and forbid him from washing their feet. Because it is an act of service. It is an act for the lowest of society. And because Jesus was their leader, Jesus was their master, and the one that they looked to as the Christ, the Messiah, their Savior, He would be the last person to do something like that. And they say, don't do this. This is something that someone lower than us should do. And Jesus says, if I do this for you and no servant is greater than his master, then you ought to do this to one another. Jesus says, do this as I have done this to you. And in this act and in his clarification of love and telling us to love one another, he is defining what love is. It is not defined primarily by an emotional response of happiness that we have in our hearts. It's not defined primarily by something good that happens to us, or I know you love me because you did something good to me that makes me feel good. It's not defined primarily by us getting something that we want to get. As if to say, if you love me, then you'll do this for me. It's not defined primarily by feeling safe and comfortable. If you want to explore a very distorted yet sensationalized version of love, just watch The Bachelor or Blind Love or any matchmaking show on TV. Why do you love her? I love the way she makes me feel. Okay, that's about you. Why do you love her? I can't picture my life without her. Okay, that's still about you. Why do you love her? Because I'm the best version of myself when I'm with her. Okay, that's still about you. All of these things are still about you. Try answering that question without using the word I. We don't know how to do that. Jesus is showing us that love is a commitment to action for the ultimate and eternal good of another person. Love is a commitment to action for the ultimate and eternal good of another person. and Joseph, Jesus shows his disciples a, an example of this, that he, he's willing to take the place of a servant. He's willing to lower himself. He's willing to humiliate himself. He's willing to humble himself, to lay down his reputation, to lay down his fame, his right, even his very life. He is willing to lay down his very life for the ultimate and eternal good of his friends. And we should recognize how upside down this is compared to the example that the world gives to us. We live in a world that equates love with absolute freedom. If you love me, then let me be me. If you love me, then let me do what I want to do, is essentially how that plays out. The ultimate eternal good for every person is to find one's hoping and resting and living in the love of Christ. Jesus knows that the ultimate and eternal good for his followers is for them to enter into what will be the most agonizing season of their life as they see their closest friend die and be ripped from their presence and to, to submit himself into the hands of his enemies. I'll say it another way, and this may sound a little controversial, but what's the point of showing up if we can't be challenged, right? It is impossible to truly love a person when the reason or expression of your love does not agree with the word and character of God. What we're doing to another person if it doesn't agree with the word and character of God, it's something different than love. It's something different than love. If it does not point us into the love of Christ, if it does not uh, steer us into the arms of God, if it does not uh, form us into the likeness of Christ, it's something different. It's not love. Why is that? Well, well, Jesus points out this issue in verse 31 to 32 when he uses the certain word five times in just this short passage. He uses the word glory or some form of glory. Glory is that significance, that opinion. It's, glory is the weightiness of God. It's To glorify God is to give him all that he is due because of who he is. Glory is, is what we make significant in our life. If something is significant to you, if something influences you, then that thing is glorious to you. And the Bible teaches us there's nothing more glorious than God because there's no relationship more transformative than God. There's no person or opinion that matters more than God's opinion. There's no perspective more important than God's. And therefore, to give the best to a person, to truly love a person, is to desire to give them the ultimate good, And because there is nothing more ultimately good than God, to love them truly is to give them God. It is to reserve the best for them at any cost, to say, I love you, and therefore I will demonstrate my love by giving you the best, and I won't settle for a lesser kind of love, a cheaper kind of love. And so we give them God. Even Jesus glorifies the Father because he knows to truly give his disciples the best, it is not to deviate in the slightest bit from God's plan. So Jesus says, "I, the Father is glorified in me and he will glorify me and what I'm about to do is to glorify God. It will bring go- glory to God and it will bring you your ultimate good and then what does he do? He goes and dies on the cross. Imagine this, if we could... Use some curiosity here for a moment. If Jesus were to poll his disciples and he says to them, I love you. Now, how would you like me to express that love to you? Option A, I can be arrested here in a couple minutes and then murdered on the cross or I can stay with you and we can just continue, continue walking together through, through you know Narnia wherever they are. <laughs> no, they're not in Narnia. Um, we can continue to do that. They're going to say, would you stay, please? Will you not leave us? That would be very unloving for you to do. And there's a reason why. Have you ever wondered why the cross has become the ultimate symbol of God's love rather than God's failure? You see, in the world's eyes, the cross is a symbol of failure. This is where God failed. That's where God didn't show his love. This is where, he, this is where everything went wrong. This is your God. This is your Savior. This is the one who came to love you and rescue you, and now he's dead. There's a reason why the cross of Christ has become the ultimate symbol of glory, of love, of hope. And it was painful for not only Christ, it was painful for us to see our Savior killed. And so we can't define love by our standards. We can't define love by what looks and feels right for us entirely. But we must define love by God's love. And the pattern of of humble and sacrificial and self-giving love for the ultimate good is God's way of love. That's how he loves. It's actually who he is, for God is love. He doesn't know how to give us anything but the ultimate good. And so he, can, he only gives us himself. And sometimes that will lead us into seasons of pain. Sometimes a loving word will lead a friend into pain. Sometimes our loving actions or words or presence will, will be undesirable to us. Sometimes we don't want to hear those things. We don't want to do those things. We don't want to receive love from others. And so we must be careful not to define love by our standards but God's. And so he gives us this example of love, but he also shows us not only do we understand this example of love, we must understand the encounter with love. Going beyond just what we observe, we must experience and encounter this kind of love, there's a kind of love that only Christians can give, and this is why Judas had to leave the table. See, Jesus had 12 there at the table, and Judas leaves the table, and then Jesus now enters into this separate conversation with the 11, because there's a kind of love that he knows that Judas cannot give, because there's, only, there's a certain kind of love that only those who have received the love of God can give, because you cannot give what you have not received. You cannot give away what you do not possess. It's a kind of love that we give that is an overflow of Jesus' love in our life. So where do we get this love? Well, the command to love one another likely will stir up some good action points in your mind. Maybe you are seeing some faces right now, too, as we even read this passage to talk about loving one another. What comes to mind for you are maybe people that you feel you need to love better. And so you're thinking about the people that you need to be nicer to. You're thinking about people that you should forgive or you're thinking, you know, I really do need to be more patient. I need to be more kind. I need to be more compassionate. Um, I really should use a little more compassion in my life for my church that God has given to me. I really should love, you know, this person or that person. But while those, those are all really good things, they're still a very human kind of love. Anyone can be nice. Anyone can be patient. Anyone can be compassionate. So what's Jesus calling us to do if this is like a special kind of love? It's a divine love. It's a divine love that Jesus calls us to that only comes about from a radical encounter with the love of God that overflows in our life to others. So before we put acts, uh, like energy into acts of love towards others, we must have this radical encounter with the love of God. We don't want to just say, okay, I need to love others and then try to go out and do that. We need to pause, we need to reflect on the love of God that is empowering us. It's one thing to know God's love and yet another thing to encounter love in a deep way. I want to. I can encounter. I can explain this and kind of encounter with the love of God um, in some basic accounting terms. And some of you will will appreciate this. Uh, debits and credits. Okay, are you with me? Um, Debits and credits. You know, I learned this in accounting 101 at the U of A. That was a term I became very familiar with, debits and credits. And after a year of accounting, there was another term at the university I came very familiar with, uh, grade replacement opportunity. And uh, (laughs) yeah, uh, use that on on, on accounting 101 there. So so if you have a debit column uh, in your life, which represents all the negative all the bad actions, all the bad habits of your life, right? So you're filling up the debit column. Here, here are all the things I regret, I have remorse over. Here, here are all the, the losses in my life. And then you have the credit column. And, and, and the credit column is filled with all the good and admirable, um, all the positive things. These represent all the good things that you have done, your acts of righteousness that you have done, that you hope will will God will look at that credit column and and. And bless you because of that. And, and our natural tendency in our life is to live our life to the best of our ability, filling up our credit column and keeping our de- debit column as small as possible, right? That's, that's kind of how we're living our lives. Um, but here's what the Bible tells us. Everything that we can give, every act that we do is really in the debit column. It is worthless. Every, every act of righteousness, every good, every work, God says, this is worthless in your attempt to please me and to earn my love. And everything that we thought was in the credit column, our credit column is just empty. And so we're in a very, very discouraging place. And this is the accounting that God offers to us in his love. God says, I will take all of your guilt, everything in your debit column, and you will take my righteousness. He takes the ledger of our life and he flips the ledger and he says, I will take all of your losses, all of your bad, all of your shame, all of your guilt, I will take it on the cross and I will give to you and treat you as if your credit column is full, but it will be because of my righteousness and not yours. That's love. That's the love of God. The love of God is God flipping the general ledger of our life so that even though everything we've ever done was a loss, and a negative, all of that falls on Jesus. And he gives us his righteousness. He says, I will take your guilt and you will take my righteousness. I will take your debt and you will take my credit. But you have to come to know this love. You have to come to know that he has done that in your life that he has given you the freedom to cease from your striving, to fill up that credit column, to be pleasing to God, to be loved by God because of what you do or because of what you don't do. It's one thing to believe that Jesus loves you in a general way and it's another thing to encounter this love deeper in your heart where you truly know that you are accepted, secure, and significant, not because of anything that you have contributed, but because of his righteousness alone. Have you experienced that that flipping of the ledger in your life and truly embraced that, truly trusted in his work for you? Encountering the love of Christ is a matter of seeing that we are far worse than we ever imagined, but his love is far greater than we ever hoped. Our sins are deep. Our sins are deeper than the ocean. His love is wider than we ever can imagine. You know, all the places that we previously put our hope in they, they're worthless. When we experience the love of God in a deeper way, we will look back on our life and we will see even the things that we did well and, and, and did right to obey God, we were doing because we wanted to earn his acceptance. We will look on our life and say even the things we put our hope in were actually worthless. And what we thought was beyond repair and what we thought was broken about us God can make new. God restores. God redeems. He resurrects and makes us a new creation. That's what God does. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, we hear this. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. How do we do that? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus continues to clarify his love. So we don't have this distorted and and convoluted, confused view of love. What is love? Love is that God laid down his life for us. That he substituted his life. He took our place. He he took our debts, our guilt, and gave us his credits. Christ's saving work has accomplished far more than we could ever imagine. We grow deeper into understanding the love of God when we focus less on what we need to do to earn God's love and more on what God has already done for us because he loves us. And the cross of Jesus is is the gateway to knowing the love of God. The cross of Jesus is the gateway to a true life of love. A true life of loving others is living in this reality that he died for us. And so we humble ourselves, we sacrifice ourselves, we lay down our rights, we, we serve others just as Christ has served us. We don't consider any point too low to go. We risk our reputation, we risk our fame, we risk our own glory, we risk our own comfort for the sake of showing love to others. And when we know the truth of God for us, the greater the more that we understand his love for us the more equipped we will be to show love to others it is this divine love it is not a human kind of love anyone can do that you know i know you know people that are like i have people in my life that don't know jesus that are nicer than christians amen anybody have people like that but there's a different kind of love there's a special kind of love a way that christians can only love And it's not a human kind of love. It's a divine love. The love of God that fills our hearts and overflows. That is truly sacrificial, truly humble, truly selfless. That goes beyond our own ability and our own natural instinct. Because you and I know that we deserve God's punishment. You and I know that we are all in the same boat. We deserve God's punishment because of our sins. But instead of giving us what, he, what we deserve, he gives us grace. He punishes Christ in our place. We are set free from the bondage of sin. Instead, we are given his abundance, mercy, and his love. This leads us lastly to understanding about love, and it's the exhortation to love, right? We are to love, so how do we do that? What does that look like? Jesus gives this command to his followers to love one another with full awareness that people will come along in their life that will be difficult to love. Jesus is not naive. Jesus is not foolish. Jesus doesn't think that everyone is awesome and easy to love. He says this to the, the, the 11 who are there who are very different from one another. He's saying this to the very room of people that he's with that are having a hard time loving one another. We receive, we receive this command as people in a church that are very different from one another. And you and I will have times in our life where we will really struggle with showing this kind of love to one another. And the hard reality Of this passage is this at some point in your life, you will encounter people who are very, very difficult to love. And at some point in your life, you will be a person very, very difficult to love. It's easier and quicker to say, I need to go to another church, it's easier and quicker to say, I need to find new friends because that works. What you really need to do is go to a place where humans don't exist. What the church needs are people devoted and committed to learning how to love well. Could it be that Jesus has brought together people that are very different from one another, that are all sinful, to create for himself a laboratory where we are just learning how to love one another well. And through every conflict, we get another chance to understand in a deeper way how God loves us. When life is messy, when people sin and it's messy, when it hurts us, that ought to remind us of how our sins have hurt God and cost Him the very life of Christ. The way Do you know the way that you and I can tell that we are growing in maturity in our faith? The the reason for why we do what we do is not to optimize our comfort, but to love others. Because that is the most unnatural thing to do in the world. To make a decision not to increase our welfare and comfort and safety, But to say, God is calling me into walk this, this path of obedience, to love as He has loved me, and I will make a decision based on that reality instead of the reality of my comfort. That's when we know we're growing deeper in relationship with God. This is how the world will know that you and I belong to Jesus by the t shirts we wear wait a minute, is that what he says? <laughs> By the verses on our coffee cups. Can't we just show up for church every day and that's how you, they will know that we belong to Jesus? Can't we just give financially to the church? Can't we just, uh, w- what can we do? Where, can we put the, the bumper sticker on our car? Is there another way we can show the world that we follow Jesus other than loving one another? That's not the prescription that Christ gives. He says, this is how the world will know that you follow me. Love one another as I have loved you. Anyone can give to the poor. Anyone can change their behavior. Anyone can change their actions in their life to look like a Christian. Anyone can do it. But we are called to live by a power of love that does not come from within ourselves. We are called to live by a power of love that can only be received by God. We're meant to live on the power of God's love for us, the love of God that forgives us, that rescues us, that flips the ledger in our lives and welcomes us into relationship with him. We are called to live by a power of love that is the most unnatural thing to do, and that is to love people who hurt us and who are different from us but that kind of love will transform our church. That kind of love will change our city. That kind of love will change the world. It's that kind of love that will advance the mission of God and spread the gospel in our families, in our marriages, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, It is that kind of love that the world will look on and say, why are you doing that? Doesn't that put you at a disadvantage? Yes, it does. But I don't need to be comfortable in this moment. I don't need to be safe. I don't need to feel improved because I have everything that I need in Christ, His love fills me. His love satisfies in a way that the world's love cannot satisfy. A kind of love, this kind of love is indeed an invitation to enter into the mess of difficult relationships, to stick with it, to endure through it, to serve others, to, to continually reject this idea of, of that the kind of relationships we want are the relationships that are neat and tidy. because the neat and tidy relationships, when we have the love of God and understand the love of God, the neat and tidy relationships no longer become our top priority. But what becomes our top priority is, is seeing the love of God transform our life and the life of our fellow family members in God's family. The love of God becomes the, the gathering point for our church, not the neat and tidy relationship. Why do we gather? What, what are we gathering uh, to look at and to cast our eyes on? You see, we all gather and, and we focus on the centerpiece. The centerpiece of our service is, is Jesus Christ. The centerpiece is the good news that we've been rescued. In a world that's becoming increasingly self-absorbed and individualized according to our own preferences and comforts, Jesus invites us into a life that is far more rewarding and far more meaningful. It's a love that gathers around his love and shows this love to one another.